hello, poopers of the world. I can get away with that because technically all of us are poopers. So I know that that's accurate. (gasps) Amy has a shirt on that says, I pooped today. That is the most magnificent thing I might have ever seen. Oh, my goodness. Well, guys, look, we're already off to a weird roll. Welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. Of course, who else but Amy Hollenkamp are to the D would be wearing the I Poop Today shirt. And I will raise you, I will raise you the I Poop Today shirt with my shirt that just says, you can enjoy FODMAPs. Nice. Nice. With an apple on it. So we are rocking the t-shirts here today on the podcast. We have what is potentially one of our juiciest, tastiest, food pun intended episodes yet. And that is food sensitivity testing. And we could just encompass food sensitivities overall. But um, we're feeling a little a little spunky today. Am I right? My favorite co-host? We're feeling we're feeling like some tea needs to be spilled, perhaps. Yeah, we're feeling maybe a little savage. A little savage. You heard it here. So yeah. I guess what I'll I'll open with, I won't put you on the spot for once, is I do think that food sensitivities are a real thing. It's not that we're people are already apprehensive. They're like, oh shit, this is gonna be a rough episode. Right, right. It's not that we're denying that food sensitivities exist. I think that the testing we have available is extremely hit and miss regarding diagnosing food sensitivities. And ultimately, like, how they're treated is even worse, because oftentimes the dialogue is, we'll just never eat that again. Or don't eat it for a period of, like, two years. And I think that mm-hmm. that's preposterous, and it, it doesn't have to be that way. But you can kind of first wrap your head around what we're talking about. So first off, a food sensitivity is going to be a little bit more analogous to an allergy, rather than an intolerance. So in the case of an allergy or a sensitivity, it's your immune system having a inflammatory or otherwise unwanted reaction to a food or an antigen. In the case of an allergy, it's going to be very quick within seconds or minutes. Typically with a food sensitivity, it can be anywhere from minutes downstream to hours or even days later, theoretically. So, and that has to do with the type of antibody that's produced. But in both cases, These can theoretically be diagnosed because there would be some antibody associated with that process. With a food intolerance, you're never, ever going to catch that on laboratory testing. Not in this nature, at least. If you have a intolerance to FODMAPs or an intolerance to histamine or an intolerance to oxalate or an intolerance to salicylates, those are completely different. If that's what you're going for in this podcast episode, this one might not be as applicable to you, because those are all intolerances, and it has more to do with some part of your body, or some part of your microbiome, or your gut not processing that metabolite Mm -hmm. very well. So like you're not processing and excreting histamine appropriately, you're not processing oxalates appropriately, or whatever the case may be, the salicylates, whatever else. With this, we're talking about, if we're really narrowing down to bona fide food sensitivities, then theoretically there would be an immune response against that food. And oftentimes it's it's evaluated or it's measured by looking at antibodies. And that's where kind of the the beef begins is now I don't know for you, Amy, did you you didn't ever you never had food sensitivity testing done when you were going through your healing journey, right? Or did you? Oh I did. Oh I didn't was- realize that. Okay. Tell me your experience with this squirrely world. Okay. So interestingly enough, it was right before I went the functional route. I was working with an wait, ENT. Wait, wait. Right before? So somebody right. other than a functional person? Yeah. Ran this okay, test- this is really so so I weirdly enough, it was my ENT. My okay. ENT suggested I do like the Alcat test. Okay. And again, I was like, okay, like I'm open to this. So we ran the test. And, of course, it was, like, you know, tons of different things came up. And she was, there was very little guidance. She gave me this booklet that was, like, follow this booklet. And it was, like, you can have these things for five days and then you cycle them out. Like, it was so complicated, the instructions. So I ended up just being super freaked out of what the foods were, which it was so broad, but then they were like, no, you can't eat a food too much then. 
that you haven't eliminated because then that'll become a food sensitivity. So I think that like the part that drives me crazy and the, the part that I feel like I experienced at a high degree right out the gate was that immediately there was a strategy that was based on you have to figure out the foods that you're reacting to in order to find relief. Mm. That was the uh, initial approach was the food's the problem is essentially yeah. the message that yeah. that food sensitivity testing says. Which again, like, I'm not saying that certain food sensitivity tests can't pose a problem or food sensitivities, I'm sorry, can't pose a problem. Yeah. But I I feel that it sent me down a path that was problematic and prevented me from seeing root causes until I learned a bit more the hard way. Yeah. So, again, when I did the food sensitivity testing, my experience was very frustrating. Again, probably set me up mentally towards foods in a, in a negative way yeah. before I even went into the functional space that was all about, you know, restricting FODMAPs, restricting foods. Mm-hmm. So it set me up for more restrictions down the line and to look at food as, like, the primary driver the of enemy, symptoms. The culprit. Yeah. Right. Versus looking deeper, which I think, again, I, I I think that's the frustrating part, especially when people use it as like a frontline defense. Yes. Mm-hmm. Again, I, uh, there may be some situations where it might make sense to do a food sensitivity test. Again, maybe. Uh, it's yeah. not something I typically use, yeah. but, you know, I, I think there could potentially be a situation where it makes sense. But I think at the same time, it would never be my first strategy at, no. at this point because, again, even if you take out all the food sensitivity t- sensitivities that are coming up on your test, trusting that they're accurate and reliable, which, again, we will talk about how that's yeah. problematic. Yeah. But taking all those things out aren't really fixing the problems or why your immune system might be more reactive to foods. Yes. So... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yes. And I'm sorry if my audio was just momentarily very loud for people, but oh my gosh, you hit the nail on the head. Your body doesn't just one day decide, I'm really pissed at sesame seeds. And I'm going to use my own as an example here. Hmm. My body just didn't assume one Wednesday morning, you know what? I'm going to be pissed off at sesame seeds now. Yep, that feels good to me. There we go. We're going to do that now. It something had to have happened to instigate the food sensitivities. Similarly, somebody who's a celiac, like something had to happen to put that autoimmunity into motion. It's not like the body just decided, I'm going to attack my intestines today because that seems really cool. And I'm going to do that forever now. Like that's not how the body works. So with the testing, even if theoretically you are reactive to some of these foods, it's a band-aid in the Mm. moment that may or may not help with symptom management. But even if it does help with symptom management, it's a band-aid. You still have to dig deeper. Food sensitivities are not a root cause any more than leaky gut is a root cause or SIBO is a root cause or IBS is a root cause. You have to keep digging deeper. But I do find now I'll I'll kind of share my, I have, I have a two pieces of perspective from my experience on this. So I very much went down the rabbit hole of cutting out foods as well. And part of that, for better or worse, I was in all of these functional medicine seminars and conferences. Every single mm-hmm. weekend, I was listening to some functional seminar. and It was great. But functional medicine is very heavily skewed towards cutting out foods. Mm-hmm. And they'll tell you food is medicine, and we practice precision medicine and shit like that. But really, they teach you how to cut foods out. End of right. story. They do not teach you how to eat helpfully other than that. And you know, so I was going to hear Datis Grazian and the IFM, and I was hearing Dr. Perlmutter, and I was hearing all of these people reiterate over and over again that you have to do, you have to eliminate the allergens, you have to eliminate the food sensitivities, and then you have to heal the leaky gut, and then you'll be skipping off into the rainbows and farting with unicorns or whatever it might be. And so for me, I did an elimination diet initially, and I didn't notice any difference whatsoever in symptoms. And I thought, gosh, that's kind of weird. I've got some stuff going on. I thought for sure. I would react to some of these foods. And then for me, I ended up doing the Cyrex food sensitivity tests, 
At the time, they didn't have the giant panel. They had like the gluten one and the cross-reactive food one. That was all Mm -hmm. they had. But I did those. And that was where I found out, surprise, not only does my body not like gluten, but also I had the celiac antibodies. Yeah. (laughs) So I did catch the celiac diagnosis totally accidentally. And it showed up that I was having a pretty gnarly reaction to dairy, which later on made a lot more sense. But also I had the reaction to sesame. And again, it's not like my body just decided to get pissed at sesame. In retrospect, I figured out later, oh, it makes sense because I was eating store-bought hummus, which contains Mm -hmm. tahini paste, every day of my goddamn life when I was a vegetarian. And I was eating that nonstop every day of my life for like 12 years. And then during that time frame, I had Lyme disease. I had crap loads of antibiotics. I had a wicked concussion. I had a lot of stress. Like, one or more of those things instigated enough of a leaky gut and enough of an immune response that then my body was primed and ready to react to something that otherwise should have been benign. And it just so happened every single day I was presenting my immune system with this antigen. So literally any day of the week for 12 years of my life, from the ages of like 11 to 22, any day of the week, if I had some inflammatory insult, it just so happens that that allergen was always around. Right. And then my immune system went a little wackadoo. In years since, I've been able to add sesame back in, and my body's totally fine with it now. So right. I know that that calmed down. But for me, you know, initially coming out the gates when I first graduated and started practicing, I was doing some sensitivity testing, not on everybody, not a ton. Mm-hmm. And I was mostly doing the Cyrex panels and finding them moderately useful. But what I started noticing that started to make me turn on it to some degree is when I practiced in Arizona, I was like a mile away from the naturopathic school. Mm -hmm. And there was a student-run clinic, you know, like the the later term kids in school were in the clinical rotations. And it was cheaper to go to the student clinic than it was to go to a practicing naturopath or a functional medicine doctor. So a lot of people would end up going to this naturopathic school first before they shelled out the money to see somebody like me, which is totally understandable. But every single person I ever saw who went through the naturopathic school clinic first, every single one of them had a IgG food sensitivity test, Mm -hmm. usually from Genova. And out of the 90 or 100 foods, pretty much everybody would have a list of about 20 or 30 foods that they were told to never eat again. Right. And they would be on this hella restrictive elimination diet. And they were... They were coming to me because they still felt like crap. And so I was the person who was like, you know, a a couple steps down the road where I was like, oh, okay, I don't even have the opportunity to use that tool because you've already used it and you still feel like shit. So I have to think outside the box and use a different tool because you've already been down that road. And it started making me really question the utility of this tool. And like, I even remember there was a... a meetup group that Mike and I went to a handful of times. They called themselves the freak at, Freaks at the Table. I don't know if they still exist, but Freaks at the Table was a group for people with a lot of food sensitivities and allergies, and they would go to, like, the one or two safe restaurants, quote-unquote safe, mm. in the Valley and do this meetup, like, once a month or whatever. And it was all of these people. They would, you know, because we would stand up and introduce ourselves, and uh, everybody around the table would be like, And I can't eat this and this and this and this. Or they would have a printed out list of their foods given to them by the naturopaths or whoever. They would have their list of 30 foods and they would literally send the list back into the kitchen when they were preparing the food. And we would like, you know, everybody would be comparing the list. And I remember every time we went, I would tell my husband on the ride home, I was like, man, I'm doing pretty good by comparison. I still had IBS at this point, but I was like, man, at least I'm just cutting out gluten, dairy, sesame and at the time i was cutting out potatoes as well but i had come a long way by then and i was like damn like i'm doing pretty good by comparison but right yeah i just i i think that most likely those people were cutting out a lot of foods that they didn't necessarily have to cut out and the pattern sometimes is weird it'll be like blueberries i'm like what the fuck did blueberries ever do to you like they're not allergenic right. at all i've never right. met a person in my life who had a genuine reaction to a damn blueberry like, there are certain foods that could be more allergenic, but my goodness gracious, or like romaine lettuce. Really? Right. Really. Or the ones that really crack me up, when 
I'll, sometimes this will happen. They'll get a food sensitivity test back and it'll be like, oh, highly reactive to scallops. And the person will be like, I hate seafood. I have not eaten scallops in 30 years. Right. How did it come back positive? And I'm like, mm, it's because yeah. it's a big pile of horseshit. That's what's happening right. here. Like, Well, yeah. I mean, and I think too, like, part of it might be like some of the testing methods too and how they're, because I know I've heard that Sometimes they're using, like, cooked versus uncooked. Mm -hmm. Like, sometimes Mm -hmm. it's raw versus cooked is how they're testing it, and that could affect, you know, sensitivity level. And, again, Mm -hmm. I just think the methods aren't really clear. The worst for me is the Everly Well, because at least, like, with Cyrex or, you know, a provider, there's at least an opportunity for the provider to help in some way. Again, I think I haven't really seen... whether they do or not. Right. I haven't necessarily seen a lot of providers be overly helpful for, like, removing 30 foods, but, you know, at least there's, like, some objective person in the mix. The Everly Well, like, the commercials just, like, drive me up a wall because they're so widespread now. But it's like you have these Everly Well commercials that are like, I have bloating and I realized that I was eating nuts or almonds yeah, it was or... almonds it's all yeah and like, it's like i see the ones for almonds a lot right it's like okay i guarantee you that almonds were not the only thing that came up because i've never seen like just one thing come up on a food sensitivity test agreed and it's like oh it seems so simple and magical and i it just sets us such well, a, a dangerous precedent i think that's for, the for unicorn people. Right. That's the unicorn right. that everybody's chasing. And they I guarantee they do those commercials very intentionally. Right. They don't want to tell you the truth, which is, holy shit, 20 foods came back positive. What am I going right, to eat? Right. They want right. to show you the myth that happens. Hold on. There's a, there's a stand-up comedian that has a joke that is relevant here, but I don't want to butcher it too much. I think it's a Mitch Hedberg joke. So I was going to say, like, they're showing you the outcome that happens the least, right? Right. right. And so I think it's a Mitch Hedberg bit. Have you ever listened to Mitch Hedberg's stand-up comedy? I don't, I don't think so. How are we friends? I, I'm going to send know. do some. He was wonderful. He was so funny. So he was a stand-up comedian that passed away in like 2004 or 2005. But he sounded high or stoned or drunk in every yeah. performance because he probably was. Uh, but he had this bit where he was like, I saw a billboard once of a guy winning at a slot machine but that's the outcome that happens the least. It's like it's it's like if they showed a, a billboard of a guy eating a hamburger, but he's choking. Right, right. Like, hey, this happened once. <laughs> and it's like yeah. the guy winning at the slot machines, like, hey, this happened once. Like, it's kind of similar. But similarly, with the Everlywell commercials, mm-hmm. there's probably like one person out there who has gotten the test back and it was one food. And then they cut right. that one food out and then they felt miraculous. That's the unicorn. That's the dream that everybody's chasing when they do these mm-hmm. damn tests because they think, gosh, golly gee, it's so much. E-. And I I know because I was there. Gosh, golly gee, it would be so much easier to just cut out potatoes than actually deal with my bag of bullshit I'm carrying around in life, my stress, my sleep, my right. relationships with other people, my actual nutrition and making sure I'm getting calories and I'm not like over dieting or whatever. And my, all the right. crap we talk about in the IBS Freedom Podcast but it's so tempting, it's so alluring, the thought of there could just be one food, and I could find that magical one food, and then I could ignore everything else and be frolicking off into the rainbows. Sign me up. Yes, please. Like, it's just, right. it's horse manure. It's absolute horse manure. And Everly Well, unfortunately, plays into that beautifully, and they probably laugh all the way to the bank, for that matter. Well, and again, I think there's a couple points I'd like to make. I think there's... There's a lot of things I wish were more direct to consumer, which like, again, Mm. like I know, and I think CGM is a good example. Like, Mm. I don't think that CGM, like I think you, hopefully you'd be able to work with someone. But again, like it's typically only for like diabetic or someone with diabetes, you know, someone that's struggling with like diagnosed blood sugar instability. But I do think like that could be a valuable tool, not only for someone that has diabetes. Like we've worked with tons of people that could benefit from doing CGM. So like there's things that I think could be tools that I wish were a little bit more widely available. And again, like, yeah, I'm all for that kind of stuff. But I think things like, Oh, I was just going to say, or even just like 
being able to go in and get a simple blood test to check your iron level or check your vitamin D level or check your thyroid. Like, that should be... I mean, I feel like once a doctor or somebody alerts you to that as an issue, like, you should have the freedom to go in and just recheck it when you want to. Right. Um, I I think it's a difference between, like, a lot of the stuff that I think should be more direct to consumer and very easy to to access is like data. So like data points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like the Everly Well is data technically, but it's also an intervention built into yeah. one. And I don't think I, I think there's a lot of risk to the intervention being removal of food, because like what you're saying, the ramifications is okay, so you're not nourished. There's a higher yeah. risk of not being nourished. And again, I think that that's the frustrating part. The most frustrating part to me about Everly Well is like, again, it is an intervention and it can just really have harmful consequences if it's not being monitored properly. And then I think the other thing I was going to say, oh my God, now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> You're, Oh my God, now I've totally lost my train of thought. Ugh. Were you going to say how stunning I look today? Well, that's always a given. That's always a given. I don't know if that jogged your memory at all. Um, well, I can I can kind of pick up and then you can chime in when the thought comes back. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, I think it's like, what do you do with the information? Right. right. Like, how risky is the intervention? Like you were saying, like, okay, mm-hmm. if you were to waltz into a place and check your iron and it came back low, what would be the intervention? You would just take an iron pill. How right. risky is that actually? Very minimally risky, to be honest. Right. Like, just take the iron, whatever. So, like, that should be readily available, I think, because then, yeah, like, how risky right. is the intervention? Knowing, you know, using the data in the CGM, like, okay, maybe you start playing around with different foods and you realize, like, for my husband, my husband realized that out of all the carbohydrates and the sugar and the fruit, corn spikes his blood sugar the worst. Mm. And he used to be a corn addict. Corn yeah. tortilla chips, corn tortillas for taco night. And now we've been distinctly shifting towards corn-free alternatives and not having tortilla chips in the house for him to graze on. And, like, we try not to do popcorn a whole lot because we just know now that corn in particular, for whatever reason, like, corn just really spikes the blood sugar. But, like, mm. oatmeal does not. Or things that have oatmeal in them do not. Or like even, you know, when he has wheat or when he has gluten-free bread or something else or rice, he'll get a bit of a blip, but it's not nearly as bad as corn. Right. Like how how risky was that intervention for him to learn to choose other carbohydrate sources in his diet and just opt to eat corn less frequently? Like that's right. pretty low risk. Um, at least for him it was. Versus, like you were saying, if you get a list back with 30 different foods and you have no guidance or a very minimal amount of guidance, or if you have guidance from a person who is in that mentality of, oh, never again, these are the bad foods, then you're potentially going to be very malnourished or at the bare minimum, you're going to be unhappy. You cannot tell me with a straight face that you are genuinely a happy and well-balanced person when you're cutting out 30 foods. It's just, I don't believe Well, and I think... Even a little bit deeper than that layer, too, is like, okay, this is a recipe for disordered eating. Honestly, like if you're just blatantly removing a whole bunch of foods and then again, the mindset shifts between, okay, food, these foods are the enemy. Yep. And the, and I have to remove foods in order to get well. And I have to be good. Right. And I have to be good. And I'm going to be like, I don't know, just a whole slippery slope that is problematic. And again, we see, I see so much disordered eating and I think it's probably the most frustrating aspect because it's like, and it's not anyone's fault. I, I definitely had some disordered eating when I was going through IBS and SIBO. And I would say you probably did too, like some degree of disordered eating with all your health history. And some of it makes sense too. Like if you've had symptoms with different foods and again, I can totally understand and, and empathize and sympathize with it. But I think again, like it's, it's all these tools and practitioners that sort of promote it so heavily that it's just, again, it's such a dangerous slippery slope. And I think that that's a whole other can of worms, too. And again, I think the the problem with the food sensitivity test, too, is like, you know, the the issue is 
you know, what you were saying before, the promise isn't really true. Yeah. For most people, if they're, even the if they avoid does not exist. The limit does right. not exist. Right, right. So even if you remove the 30 foods, there'd still be the dysfunction that was causing the reactions if you're not doing anything else. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's the really nasty thing about this too, is that the more you narrow your diet and the more you take mm-hmm. away that nutritional diversity, right? now you're setting the stage for an immune system that really is going to get pissed off at everything right. from the microbes to the food. And if you didn't have food allergies and food sensitivities before cutting out the 30 foods, you damn sure are going to create an environment that's going to create all of those reactions now. Because now... Your microbiome is going to be less diverse. Your nutrition is going to be less diverse and less adequate. And your immune system is going to start leaning toward that inflammatory state because it doesn't have the stimulation to the T regulatory cells from the gut microbiome and the dietary Mm -hmm. diversity. So you're creating a really nasty cycle and Mm -hmm. you're almost, and it's weird because it's like a reinforcing loop, right? Like you do the sensitivity test, you cut out all the food and then you develop more sensitivity. So maybe you do the sensitivity test again a year or two down the road and now you have Mm -hmm. more foods to cut out or maybe you rotate some of the old ones back in and it's, and then you might feel a little bit better when you cut some of those out. And it's like, it, it continues to prove to you, prove loosely, I'll use that word. It continues to prove to you, see, the food was the bad thing. Because now you're creating this immune system that generally is overreacting to everything. And that's not good. You're losing tolerance to your food. And eventually you can lose tolerance to chemicals. So the Mm. people who, you know, like they walk into an office building and one person 30 feet away has perfume on and they immediately launch into a full migraine or hives. Right. That's not normal. That's loss of chemical tolerance. And similarly, you can lose tolerance to self-tissue, a.k.a. develop an autoimmune disease. Because your immune system kind of broadly thinks about tolerance to self-tissue, to chemicals, to food antigens. Like, it's all kind of the same idea for the immune system, the idea of tolerance. And if you start losing tolerance to your food because of lack of dietary diversity, you're going to set the stage for loss of tolerance to a lot of different stuff that you don't want to lose tolerance to. Well, I think a really good example of this, and again, I know the broad stroke story of it, not necessarily like the details, the nitty gritty details of it, but is what we did with peanuts. It's like with peanuts, you know, they said, oh, we need to wait longer for kids to try peanuts. And what happened? We have way more peanut allergies allergies. now than we, than we ever did. So now we're backtracking the doctors and stuff are backtracking on that recommendation and now they're saying try the peanuts earlier and i think again there's yeah like peanuts should be the first thing you introduce (laughs) right exactly and i think again like it's so interesting um that that happened and i think it's such a, a a clear example of how what you're saying is okay sometimes just eliminating things from the diet can cause loss of tolerance not like Mm you know, the benefits you think you're getting. So, yeah. Yeah. And even like with, with me, I'll just share, cause as again, my, my two that remain to this day, as far as I'm aware, um, being a celiac, my body still doesn't like gluten and I'm not going to really muck with that. Um, mm. and then dairy, I, I, my theory is that I had a lifetime's worth of dairy in utero. So I think that my body just <laughs> lost tolerance to dairy. Cause it was like, no man, we're good. We, we got set for life by the age of like one. I had all the right. dairy I ever needed in my life because I, my mom sustained me on Haagen-Dazs ice cream through <laughs> my entire pregnancy or her pregnancy yeah. with me. So I think I just had my fill of it at a very young age. Um, but this is such a can of worms. It's such a can of worms. It's, I don't know, Amy. I don't know. <laughs> I just derailed myself because I was going off on a tangent in my mind. Oh, we're in prime form today, people. I think we're in just such a tizzy over this topic that it's hard for us to, like, see the forest through the trees (laughs) because we're just, like, our blood's Uh, boiling. Yeah. We're thinking of every Everly Well commercial that's ever popped on the screen. It's, they're, like, flashing in front of our face. But, yeah, I mean, again, like, the thing, we mentioned it, but I also think we haven't covered it in totality, and I don't think we need to get really in the nitty gritty on this, but... 
And I think Cyrex is probably the best in terms of accuracy and like reliability of the the data, but you it's know, not you perfect, have some... but it's probably the most usable. Right. You have some of these like tests that you know, you'll send the same sample in the same mm-hmm. day and get compl- wildly different results. And again, yeah. I think anytime you're going to make such a big change to your diet where you're removing tons of foods, like you better feel pretty confident that that's yes. accurate and reliable information. And if you're sending in a sample, the same two different samples on the same day and you're getting wildly different results. Yeah. I mean, how frustrating is that? Yeah. And I will say for what it's worth, did you know this? One of the reasons why Cyrex tends to be quite a bit more expensive than other labs for what they're offering hmm. is because they do split testing on every sample. So they ah. actually run each sample twice to kind of do like an internal validation. Yeah. So at least like they're kind of normalizing for equipment errors with that at the very least. But yeah, like I, uh, and even, you know, for me, so again, I did Cyrex initially and it did help me at the time. And it kind of helped kind of get me on the right track as far as those couple of foods. But then it sent me down this rabbit hole trail of like, other foods must be bad too. And I got sucked too far in. I think if I had gotten sucked in 10% down the rabbit hole, I would have been perfect. But I got sucked down like 80%. And that was too much. You know what I mean? Into the vortex. Yeah, yeah. Like I needed to just like gently skim the top. And then I'd be good for like what I needed at the time. But then like a few years later, so I continued to have problems because I had dysbiosis and candida, not one, but two parasites. And I look back and I think I probably had SIBO too, based on my symptoms. But like, I continued to struggle with symptoms. I thought it was still that leaky gut coming back to haunt me, Mm. despite all of the repair bite I was taking. And I remember I had a friend who graduated one year ahead of me. And I basically petitioned him because then he had a license and he was able to order labs. And I petitioned him like, hey, man, will you order me one of those fancy schmancy 99 food panels, IgG panels from Genova? And he, I remember at the time I was kind of pissed at him because he was reluctant. He was like, I could. But like, I don't know, Nick, do you think that that's really a good, is that really what you need? And I was right. a little bit annoyed with him. I ended up getting it done after that a while later i don't remember why i think it was just for funsies at that point mm-hmm. and what's funny is all of the dairy markers were totally normal for mine so i <laughs> want to bring up the point too that and gluten also was totally normal but this is important for celiac testing as well as food sensitivity testing for the vast majority of these tests there's going to be one notable exception you have to have eaten the food. Right. So right. when I do Cyrex testing, for example, like if I do the cross-reactive food list, I literally will go and I'll print it off from the Cyrex website. And I tell people, go eat all of these foods intentionally for a few weeks. And when you've do- done that, then we can send you out for the blood draw. But I print out this list that has like millet, oats, rice, yeast, you know, sorghum, whatever. And you have to eat it for at least a few weeks in order to get any sort of noteworthy response on one of those tests. Right. And then you can kind of figure it out and figure out, all right, was this a false positive? Should I cut it out forever? Should I just play with it a little bit and see what happens? But IgG tests, like those big mega panels from like Genova and US Biotech are going to be like that. Cyrex testing is going to be like that. The only notable exception is I think for MRT or like Alicat, you don't need to expose yourself because that's a totally different type of test, which I would like to focus on for a quick minute. Okay, okay. I think out of all of them, Alicat and MRT are the worst. Yeah. In my opinion. Mm-hmm. In part because the mechanism makes no sense whatsoever to my brain. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean it's intrinsically bad if I can't make sense of it. But it just means like, I, I think I'm a moderately smart person. Like I should be able to figure out the mechanism and wrap my head around it. Basically what they do, the the really short summary of Alicat and the sort of testing, is that they will take the blood sample and they'll they'll take out some of the white blood cells, the lymphocytes or the uh, leukocytes from the blood panel or from the blood sample. And then they will expose the white blood cell to different antigens in the controlled lab environment. And then they're basically looking to see if that cell puffs up 
or if it stays the same size. If the cell stays the same size, then they go, oh, okay, there's no reaction. If the cell puffs up a little bit, then they say it's a mild reaction. If it puffs up a lot, then they say it's a really vigorous reaction. The thing that cracks me up about this, though, is that when have you ever in your entire life taken, like, a piece of bread, pureed it, put it in a syringe, and then injected it into your damn blood? Never! <laughs> Never ever well, is that going to happen. Well, maybe you live a much more Speak for yourself. Life. Speak for yourself. I Amy do that every week. shooting up the gluten. Yeah. I do like it. it. I like to see if my cells get bigger or if they stay the same size. You're, you're sucking up some raw milk, you know, straight from the cow's udder. Yeah. And, you're and Armand that. loves it. Armand, Armand does it too. Yeah, right in, right in the arm. Absolutely. Right. But like, right, it doesn't make sense. Normally, no. for food to reach your immune system, here's the gist of what has to happen. Right. First of all, you chew it, you break it down, and there's enzymes in your saliva, and that changes the structure of what you're eating. Then it goes into the vat of battery acid in your damn stomach, and the acid and the pH change changes more stuff. And then it gets exposed to more digestive enzymes and proteases and lipase and all of that jazz. Then you get to encounter, it gets to encounter the microbiome, which is going to alter the food more, and it's going to digest some of the food, leave some of it, like the microbiome's going to process it. Then it gets to encounter the brush border enzymes that break it down into smaller bits. Then it gets absorbed through the, the GI tract, through the lining of the gut wall. Then, and only then, will it encounter an immune cell. But I got news for you. It's not encountering your run-of-the-mill neutrophil monocyte lymphocyte. It's encountering a dendritic cell. It's encountering an antigen-presenting cell that is specially designed to only live in your gut and mm. monitor it. The dendritic cells have these little arms, or like little octopuses, and they have their feelers, and they have one feeler out monitoring the microbiome and the pH and all of that crap and the mucus. It has another arm sampling the shit that's coming in through the gut barrier, and then it's got another arm, not pictured because I only have two arms on my body, but it's got another arm that's going back here, and that is communicating with the other white blood cells. So mm-hmm. if if the signals that the dendritic cell is picking up from the microbiome, the mucus, the pH, the gut lumen, and the signals from the antigens, like the food proteins that it's getting exposed to, if those two things seem threatening, then that dendritic cell will take that antigen, that fragment of stuff, like gluten, or casein or whatever it might be, then that dendritic cell will take that stuff and it will present it to an immune cell, like a T cell. And then the T cell has to make a decision of what to do with it. But you can see it's not just, oh, let's just put a drop of this antigen in front of this random ass white blood cell, which I've got news for you is probably a neutrophil. And this is not what neutrophils do, Mm. but they make up 60% of your white count in your blood. So they're probably doing a lot of this testing on neutrophils. But they're just presenting antigen to a random-ass white blood cell that doesn't even know what to do with the damn thing, and it has no context. It doesn't have the context of the microbiome, the gut barrier permeability, the mucus, the pH, nothing. And that food was not broken down. It wasn't changed. It wasn't wasn't transformed in any way. And then here's this lab putting shit in a Petri dish or the machine or whatever they're doing. And they're saying, ooh, that cell puffed up. That must be a bad reaction. And I'm like, in what universe does that make any sense whatsoever? I think this is the dumbest mechanism ever. The only call to fame is that it would theoretically not necessitate that you eat the food ahead of time. So it could be really convenient for people who are already on a restrictive diet or somebody like me who's a celiac and I really don't want to reintroduce gluten for the sake of doing a damn test. Right. So in theory, it's appealing for those people but I think that it's highly likely to have a lot of false positives and not be super useful. You know, it's like, it, <sighs> is it worth it? I don't think so. Right. And I, I think they're even worse than the IgG test, honest to God. I think you're probably dead on on that. And I'm not a fan of IgG tests, which is saying something. And those are the ones, again, like US Biotech, Genova. Uh, but I want to I go down another avenue of discussing this, too. So I had sent you something on Instagram, inspo for the episode, if you will. Inspo. Is that one of the terms that the kids are using? I know that the kids are using the word sus because apparently we're too lazy to say the word suspicious. 
So I know that sus is a new slang word that the kids use. I think inspo is is another one. Tell me in the comments below, is inspo something the kids are saying on the streets? Anyway, so Beth Rosin RD on Instagram had done this post a couple days ago at the time of this recording. So for those of you listening now, it was posted in about mid-November. And uh, basically, she had shared a couple of images. Some of them were like a tweet from another doctor. And there was a screen cap of a, um, a paper from PubMed. And this is what the tweet from this Dr. Dave Stukas, mm-hmm. yeah, anyway, had said. It said, and I'm so glad that these two people brought this up because this doesn't get talked about enough. Right. Food sensitivity testing is a billion dollar industry, yet the tests are not validated, do not actually diagnose anything, and can cause harm. IgG antibody equals memory and right. tolerance, not a sensitivity. Right. And this is where it really gets weird when you start thinking through this logically. And then there was this paper, uh, CSACI, Position Statement on the Testing of Food-Specific IgG. And then there was another one, Testing for IgG4 Against Foods is Not Recommended as a Diagnostic Tool, EAACI Task Force Report. So there was two different resources that they had shared, um, but basically... In the rest of the immunology world and in the rest of the medical world, say, for example, vaccines or immunity against a pathogen, say, for example, like, I'll use this one. I don't remember the last time I had a tetanus shot. It could have been 10 years ago or more. It could have been eight years ago. I don't know. I don't remember. So if there's question, if there's a question in your mind, similarly, I don't know when I got a measles shot last. I don't remember when I got, I don't even, you get the idea. So how do we test that then to see if there's protection, Mm, theoretically, how do we look to see if there's protection against that disease when we do not know the vaccination history of the individual? We look at goddamn antibodies and we look for IgG because the whole idea, now, whether you agree with vaccinations, that is up for grabs. That's a whole different topic that honestly, I don't feel like we should cover on this podcast because it's way off topic for us. But that is the general premise, though, of the whole vaccine shtick is that you get a vaccine so that you make antibodies against the thing. And then the antibodies are protection against the thing. It doesn't mean that your body's going to attack that thing necessarily. It just means that you have some protection. You have some memory. And then likewise, if you had like if you had COVID and you have detectable mm-hmm. anti-COVID yep. antibodies, we assume that that confers protection against that disease. So why the heck are we looking at food sensitivity <laughs> tests and looking at right. IgG antibodies against blueberries and thinking that that means the immune system has labeled that as an enemy. It makes no sense in the context right. of immunology as a whole. Right. So, but I'm glad that they pointed that out because the only other person I'd ever seen bring that up, I think was Alex Vasquez. And mm. I thought that that was really thought provoking when he brought that up years ago. So I was really glad to see somebody else brought it up as well, that these antibodies are not necessarily a bad thing. And I've observed that IgG antibodies it's not a coincidence that those tests usually come back with positives for all the things you eat the most of. Right, right, right. You know, so like if yeah. I did one today, I guarantee it would come back with eggs because I eat eggs for breakfast right. probably five days a week. It would come back with chocolate and then I would absolutely lose my ever-loving mind. It would probably come back with like almonds because I have almond milk a few times a week. But like you get the idea. It's going to come back with all the stuff that I eat on a regular basis because again, the immune system is just saying, "Hey, we see that. Yeah, we hey, know that. We see that all the time. We know that. Yeah. Well, so and why I, do we think? It's a bad well, thing. and I think that the vaccine example is really good. Or just even like, let's say you had chicken pox. Yeah. Um, I had to do this for my RD program. They wanted either you immunized for chicken pox or that you've had it, and so I had or a test for test. antibodies. And mm-hmm. so again, like I have, I had super high antibodies for the chicken pox, and it's yeah. like. That doesn't mean that my body's inflamed. It doesn't like, mean at you this currently mo- have chicken pox. Right, right, right. It means that, again, my body sort of understands what this thing is. And uh, so, again, it's it's wild. I, I think it's, again, I, 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 I like that analogy because 
it's it is just sort of saying, oh, I know what this thing is. And honestly, like in some way, we probably should be looking to the world of immunology to some degree with regards to food sensitivities and food allergies, because inherently, like I said at the beginning of the episode, food sensitivities are an immune response to the food. It's not an intolerance. It's not like, you know, you're not processing and excreting histamine. It's not that you are, you know, building up this metabolite because you can't clear it. Intolerances are a whole different ballpark. But for a sensitivity, if it's really a sensitivity and we're using our terminology correctly, it's an immunological phenomenon. So we should probably be looking to the immunology world for some guidance. It's not to say that any profession knows all the things. It's not to say that they are free of flaws in and of themselves. But I think that when like the immunology profession views IgG antibodies in one light, and then the functional medicine and naturopathic space is viewing these antibodies in a completely different context and making these big leaps and having people do really restricted diets. Like it's just, it's like red flag after red flag. Right. And it, it's frustrating because I see a lot of people make dietary changes that they don't need to make. And actually, I don't know if I shared. So Mike and I visited some friends not that long ago, maybe two weeks ago, just like we did an overnight at their house and, and hung out and watched a movie and stuff. And the husband has celiac disease also. And he's, you know, he's had like a little bit of stuff here and there on and off for years. And they started working with a new functional medicine clinic. When they moved down, they bought their house out there. And they apparently did one of these big food sensitivity panels. And it came back with a whole bunch of stuff. And now this friend is not eating an awful lot of stuff. And it seems like it's a lot of stuff he was eating before. And, you know, it's like, I have to be careful to not overstep my bounds as the friend in that situation. Because, like, I kind of want to just shake him and say, no, damn it. Reintroduce all those foods. You don't have to do this. This is maddening. But I can't do that because ultimately, like, that's not my position in this relationship. But, like, they were saying that, yeah, the the functional doctor told him that he would have to cut out all of these foods for at least two years. Oh, my God. Well, you might, it might as well be forever at that point. And where are they getting these numbers, too? Like, yeah, I feel like, like they, two years. Right. They pull lengths of time out of their butt, you know, and it's, like, it, it's ridiculous. And, and I do think, too, that I think I'm surprised that and I, I definitely see it, but I'm surprised more people aren't shifting more against food poisoning. Or, I mean, sorry, uh, food sensitivity testing. Different episode. Yeah, food sensitivity testing. And I think a lot of people have shifted on it, but yeah, there's still a there. decent amount that do it. And again, like, well, I think sometimes people like to double down on things. Yeah. You know, like the second they get pressed on something, it's like their ego gets in the way or something. And it's like. I have to stick to this. And I think even people who I work with, you know, and they've been on a restrictive diet, whether it's based on food sensitivity testing or low FODMAP or something, it's like they've already invested so much time and energy to it that they it's hard to abandon. Yeah. I think that that's a piece of it. The other thing, honestly. Yeah. Money, money, money. Because what, what is the slogan that my profession, the functional medicine profession test don't don't guess guess. and if we can be the profession that holds this holy grail of fancy schmancy testing that you can't get with a normal doctor and you can't get anywhere else aside from freaking everly well but like for years up until everly well came out we were the chosen ones we were the Mm. ones who had the food sensitivity testing And you had to come to us and you had to pay us the money to get this fancy test and do all of the things that it's... And I feel the same way about Dutch testing in a lot of ways. Like, it's this, like, you want this? You want this test that I've totally built up on social media and and we've hyped up in my profession now? You have to come pay me the big bucks, man. Mm. And I'm not saying that that's always a bad thing. I think that there is a time and a place for, like, some tests probably really do need to be done under the care of a a professional like you would not get an mri and then try to interpret your own mri right right right. that'd be dumb and you would definitely miss 
anything that was on that MRI. Although, I kind of like to see people trying to. Like, I kind of want to, I want, I want, like, maybe a show or something where they, like, you know, try to get people to interpret their own medical, or maybe, like, have someone have, like, a fake doctor, like, a prank show or something, like, trying to interpret things. That'd be fun. That could be, yeah, that could be a reality show. Even, like, the show premise could be that the contestants are actors, and it's kind of like, like, it's a really weird acting audition. Like, oh, whoever, like, makes it to the final round is going to get, like, a part in a movie. Because right. we're going to have to have you do all of these things where you have to keep a super straight face. Oh, no, 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 and, no. Like, what if it's, bullshit. like, what if it's, like, that one show where there's, like, two fake people and one real person? I forget oh, what it's called. Yeah. Where they had, like, they would have some person that did something and then people would be asking all three contestants questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you'd have, like, two fake doctors and a real one, and you'd have to determine who the real one was. That that has potential. Okay, so we're just going to stop the podcast here. This is the last <laughs> episode. Amy, tell Armand that we're moving to Hollywood. We're leaving today. Yeah. Get your ass on a plane. I'll meet you at LAX, and we're going we're gonna to go we're gonna find... pitch this thing. Yeah, we're going to pitch this. We are going to be Hollywood showmakers, and we're going to... Can you imagine that? That would be really fantastic, actually. Yeah, you know, it's, it, there's, again, there's a fine line. It's, you wouldn't try to interpret your own MRI or your own right. ultrasound or EKG or something. Um, I think, again, there are some tests like iron. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at ferritin, see that it's low and go, gosh, golly gee, maybe I should eat more iron. Right. Right. It might take some deeper level of understanding to know that the LabCorp reference range is shit. And rather than shooting for 15 or above, you really want to shoot for 50 or above, right? Like there's, there's some, right. some utility in having a, a trained professional helping you with that. But then a lot of doctors would miss that anyway. So there's like a happy medium where there's the stuff that should totally be available and it's really easy to interpret. And there's the stuff that's really complex that nobody would interpret on their own. And then right. there's a lot of gray area in between. I even honestly, like I, Oftentimes, um, I think like leaky gut tests should not be interpreted by the individual person because again, right. there needs to be that conversation of like, okay, this is a consequence of something else. We need to get to the root cause. Right. Don't stop at leaky gut. And like the context of that, or even like SIBO testing. I feel like a lot of people, professionals included, get that ass backwards mm. and misinterpret SIBO tests. Yeah. Yeah. But these food sensitivity tests it's it's overall it's dangerous but like we were saying before i think that you know cyrex pretty straightforward to understand at least the reports it's you know red yellow green if it's in the green you're golden if it's red maybe try to eliminate it for a while see what happens if it's yellow i could go either way depending on the individual and like how strict they want to be and how much they want to really go gung-ho into this thing but there's one other test that i think is decent Again, I don't think any of them are perfect, including Cyrex, but there's another lab that sometimes I will use. Uh, they have a histamine test that I like called Precision Point Diagnostics. They used mm-hmm. to be called Dunwoody Labs, but then they changed their name about a year ago. They have a test. It's the P88 Dietary Antigen Test, and it combines, they for all of these foods, they look at IgE, IgG, IgG4, and complement reactions. Mm. which is very interesting. And then they kind of give you a little bit of a key to help you decipher it. I, I've used that one a handful of times. Like if somebody's insurance will cover that one, but not Cyrex, for example, right. we might opt to use the one that's a little bit more affordable in that re- regard. Again, not perfect, but it's it's been useful in a couple of ways for people. But just by and large, I think that food sensitivity, food sensitivity tests are really dangerous. And you had alluded to this earlier. I never do them right off the bat. If mm, I do yeah. use them, it is months down the road, right. typically, because I want to make sure that your gut is not wide open. I want to make sure you don't have wicked, wicked dysbiosis, because then if the gut's wide open, and again, you've got those dendritic cells, one arm sensing the microbiome and the mucus and the pH and all the stuff in the gut movement, the other arm picking up antigens from your food, if if the one arm is picking up on weird inflammatory shit, literally, from the lumen, 
then it's going to interpret those foods as trouble. And then you are going to have an excess antibody response to those foods. So you've got to manage the leaky gut and the dysbiosis to some degree before the test will ever become useful. And whether they're useful or not is kind of up for grabs, in truth. Right. Oy vey. Oy vey. Oy vey. (sighs) Well. I feel like we covered it. Do Do you have anything else? I feel like there was some other point that I was going to try to make at some at some stage of this. Um, I will say this. I think, again, I think gradually we're going to start seeing a bit of a turnaround. It's not there yet, but I think within functional medicine, it's still a problem. Um, naturopaths, I think, are actually worse. Naturopaths are very, very gung-ho about food sensitivity testing, typically the ones that I've encountered, at least. So I think naturopathic doctors, NDs, are some of the worst offenders for this. Functional medicine doctors who are not naturopaths are kind of also big culprits. I find that the the functional crowd is getting slightly better, and I think it's because of Datis Karazian. Because mm-hmm. again, years ago, he was yeah. one of the ones who made me damn paranoid about the food. And he was right. in the mode of cut out all the things and do the Repairvite diet, which is basically AIP. And only in recent years, like the last maybe three or four years, he started really having more of an appreciation for the loss of tolerance idea. Mm-hmm. And he's actually come full circle now, where now it's it's so ironic and stupid. I remember in his GI module with the Karazian Institute, I remember he was talking about, yeah, like we've all seen those patients who have cut out 30 foods and they don't eat anything. And then their tolerance for the world tanks because their immune system is totally pissed off. And I'm like, listening to this lecture, and I'm like, yeah, Detise, you were one of the people who I know, I know. Like educated hundreds of doctors and hundreds of dietitians and and naturopaths and acupuncturists and like you are one of the main reasons why a lot of these people exist. I'm not saying he's the only reason. Right. But I just kinda like cringed, like, yeah, Detise, we've all seen these people. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um but to his credit, you know, in his in his class, I remember this was a couple years ago, he was like yeah, we've all seen those people who have whittled their diet down to nothing and then they lose tolerance for God in the world because their immune system is jacked up because they don't have any nutritional diversity. And everybody in the class is like, yeah, totally. And he's like, so my solution now, and I think he actually has like a mini program that he sells to the public now about this, but now he's come full circle and he's like, we need diversity, diversity, diversity out the wazoo, especially with fibers for promoting microbiota diversity and he's actually said i have people go to the store and buy like one of everything basically like one of every fruit one of every vegetable go to the asian supermarket and get weird shit they've never seen before like get durian or something like get all these different fibers and then stick them in a vitamix and make a smoothie he actually doesn't even call it a smoothie he calls it his fruit and veggie mashup but he advocates now, put as many different plant foods in a blender and blend the crap out of it and drink, like, a bit of that every day. And I think that, that that alone we could dissect because that's coming from a space of somebody who, like, has the knowledge, you know, to, like, understand the diversity matters. But also, right. like, the clinical nutrition kind of experience is kind of not there because, like, okay, you're going to get a patient to be compliant with that for like a few weeks or maybe a few months. And then guess what? That fruit and veggie mashup is going to be disgusting. And nobody's going to comply with that for the rest of their life. So why don't we just take away this impractical, unappealing thing and find some happy medium that people are actually going to comply with? So like, he's got the knowledge. He just doesn't have like the clinical nutrition kind of foresight to understand that people won't comply with that forever. Right. But but at least he's come full circle and he's saying we have to get diversity and here's some strategies for how to do it because it's important for your microbiome and your immune system and tolerance. I give him credit that he's come full circle and he's kind of flipped his stance on its right. head in recent years. So I'm glad for that at least. And then right. he's an authority in functional medicine and therefore more functional medicine doctors, I think, I hope, are going to come around to understanding this too. The naturopaths, God love them. They're they're probably still gonna push these tests until kingdom come. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. Oh, I, I think again, like I like that Detis sort of changed gears 
But I also think, like, there's an aspect of, like, oh, acknowledge that you were, like, a part of the, yeah. the issue at first. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just glad he changed gears. Me too. But, I mean, yeah, too. it would be it would be a little bit more wholesome feeling if he was like, oh, BTW. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry right. about that. But, you know, it's I, I'm glad that he's making an effort to educate doctors and educate clinicians using the new knowledge. I think right, the worst, right. the side of, like, the worst human being that I do not want to associate <laughs> right. with is a person who has an incorrect opinion and that is presented with new information and then they dig deeper in their opinion and they refuse right. to change their wrong opinion. Like, right, like, they entrench. They entrench yeah. versus, like, growing. Yeah, like... It's okay if you change your opinion over time. Like, right. that's that's to be expected. That's gross. I, I, yeah, like, for a brief fleeting moment, I thought low FODMAP treated SIBO. And then I learned otherwise, and I changed the way I did things. You know, for for a while, I thought that the main way you treat SIBO is antimicrobials. And then I saw the light, and I came around to see things another way. So, like, I've changed my mind on things over the years, for sure. And I used to be bigger on food sensitivity tests, not not as bad as some, but I was moderately gun-ho on them, and now I've kind of changed my tune. And like I said, if I do run them now, it's usually a couple months into working with somebody when we're kind of looking for, again, like that weird pattern we're not picking up on or that oddball inflammatory response that we can't quite pit down, but we're also working on the other things too. Yeah. Oh, so guys, in summary. I, I kind of want to say in memoriam, but like, that doesn't work. Yeah, close enough. I okay. guess it's in summary, we really, you know, between the two of us, we really cannot recommend against these tests strongly enough. I don't think we can convey that strongly enough. Mm. particularly the IgG only tests. So this would include things like Genova Diagnostics, uh, US Biotech. They're really quite useless. I think that honestly, you're better off saving the paper that you would have printed the damn thing on. Save the 200 bucks. Don't even bother. Honest to God. You know, MRT, Alicat, I feel very much the same way. I just, I don't see it being a valid test if you consider real human physiology at the end of the day. Mm and real immunology at the end of the day. And I, I really question how that test even came to be. If you're going to pursue testing like this, I think that Cyrex is probably my top pick still. It's not perfect. It's not without its flaws, but it is better than most, I think. And also the precision point analytical, the uh, their P88 dietary antigen test is decent as well. Again, not without flaws. It's not the be all end all. Part of that test is IgG, and that's iffy, but at least they have the complement, the IgE, the IgG4, so there's maybe a little bit better data collection on that one as well. But, you know, for God's sake, don't give Everly Well your money. Like, it, you're not going to be the unicorn who has one food magically come back and then it solves all your problems. That's just marketing. They're getting the better of you, and they're taking your money and laughing all the way to the bank, so don't even bother with that one. And if you do pursue any sort of food sensitivity testing, try to minimize inflammation and heal up your gut lining and work on your microbiome first, and then use this as a fine-tuning measure rather than a frontline assessment, because that will help minimize the degree of false positives you get, and it'll make the data that you do collect a little bit more clear and easy to understand. But yeah, this is this is a slippery slope, and it's I do think we're we're getting more in the territory of like, you really need some help understanding how to interpret these tests and how to use them and how to develop a treatment plan that makes sense. And I'm not saying that from the position of like, test, don't guess. I'm saying this so that you come pay me all the money. Like, it's not about that. It's just like, it's so easy to lose objectivity and not have the expertise needed to really interpret something like this. And it's easy to go down the rabbit hole of food is evil and I'm never eating these things again. And by working with somebody who knows what they're doing, hopefully you stand a chance at maybe possibly getting proper recommendations and really treating the root causes and not just stopping the buck at the sensitivity test and then thinking that that's the be all end all. So if it's in your ability to do so, I would work with somebody to help you make sense out of these tests if you do choose to do them. 
Those are my closing remarks. You got anything else, Amy? I think you covered it. Okay. Well, I am exhausted because this this is such a big topic. It's kind of controversial. I hope it was mm-hmm. helpful. Again, yeah. we we've both experienced the the stress and the anxiety of, oh my God, food is evil. I need to find that one magical food. And then if I just cut out blueberries, I'll be a-okay again. But between our personal experience and our clinical experience and observing other practitioners around us, hopefully this made for an informative uh, informative podcast episode. That's always the goal, to give you information that you can ultimately use and then hopefully improve your health and weed through the bullshit because Lord knows there's a lot of bullshit out there. And speaking of which, my dear, my darling, remind the good viewers, what is your Instagram handle? <laughs> Instagram handle is Amy underscore Hollenkamp underscore RD. Yep. And I likewise am at Triangle Guts with an S at the end, plural, because I'm in the Triangle of North Carolina. I probably mm-hmm. am going to change that mm-hmm. handle at some point down the road. We'll yeah. see. But, um, but yeah, we, we call out the bullshit in the world and the bullshit in the internet, and we spill the truth on the Instagram on the regular, and of course, every week here on the IBS Freedom Podcast. So come back, join us. And if this was beneficial or mildly horrifying, if you could share this episode or share your favorite episode in one of your Facebook groups, share it with a friend, share it with your mother, I don't know, share it with somebody, but help us reach the people who need this information the most, and we would deeply appreciate that. And of course, if you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be wonderful. Subscribe on the YouTube channel and come back next week for another riveting episode, maybe a little less controversial, but riveting nonetheless episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast, and we will see you so soon. Take care. 